0: staring at me weird. I, I take a week off and I kind of forget how everything goes. Even preparing a sermon this week felt really weird after one week off. Um, so, where are we? We're in Luke 16. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and head over to Luke 16. And we're going to be starting in verse 14 here in a bit. Um, now, just to remember, I know it's been a week off, or two weeks off, since we've been in Luke 16, you might forget, Jesus has been uh, talking about the topic of money, uh, and he kind of ended the last section, with talking about you can't serve two masters, uh, you can't serve both God and money, and uh, that's kind of the, that's not kind of, that is the actual context of what we're going to be looking at here today, uh, and so we're just going to jump right into it, Luke 16, beginning in verse 14, and we'll go through 18 this morning. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, as we seek to understand the words of our Savior in this passage, which we've just read, we ask... That you would enlighten our minds, that you would soften our hearts, and that you'd change us. And we ask this in the name of the Holy Spirit, uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in the, the name of our Heavenly Father, amen. Uh, I've got these things that hit here, and they drive me nuts, so in case you're wondering why I'm pulling that up. Does that look too weird? That's going to distract you. Anyway, um, so here's where we're at right here. Uh, Jesus is saying to these religious le- leaders, or, or it's being announced by Luke, in fact, uh, that they are lovers of money, lovers of money. Now, we certainly see that same thing today, both inside and outside of the church, those who uh, we might think of as as lovers of money. If you ever seen Shark Tank, uh, you might think of Mr. Wonderful, who's always professing his, his love of money. Who, you know, and, and it probably means something like that, right? Uh, what we see in him. But it goes significantly deeper than that when we're talking about the love of money. Because uh, here's the thing. You, you don't have to be rich to be a lover of money. Right? I, I think it's easy for us to think I'm exempt because I'm not rich, uh, but it doesn't matter at all. You could be at any financial lover, level and, and be a lover of money because a lover of money is someone who sees money as a means of power and a means of control. And really when it gets down to it, they see it as a, an identity. Uh, it defines their value and who they are. Which is interesting because we, as a culture, actually put financial values on people, right? You can say Mark Cuban is, has a financial value of 4.3 billion with a B dollars, while Jeff Bezos of Amazon is worth 114 billion dollars. I don't know what my financial worth is, or even how to figure it out, but I'm I'm going to assume I'm a little less than Bezos. I don't know. Me and Mark Cuban might be the same. I'm not sure, but at least less than Bezos. Now. Uh, Of course, it's good for us to remember money is not bad, but it is very, very dangerous for our souls if we love money. As is the often misquoted verse in 1 Timothy 6.10 says, right? For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Still, too many, even within the church today, continue to do what Jesus tells us not to do. The thing he says is impossible. Uh, too many are trying to serve both money and God at the exact same time. I think that's where we begin to relate to this. As, as J.C. Ryle says, their, their consciences are so far enlightened that they feel they must have some religion But their affections are so chained down to earthly things that they never come up to the mark of being true Christians. And hence, they live in a state of constant discomfort. They have too much religion to be happy in the world, and they have too much of the world in their hearts to be happy in God. You see, the the more money that we have, the, the less we feel the need for God the more tempting it is to trust money, to, to do the things we want it to do, to accomplish things for us. And, and it can lead us to a place where we find ourselves trusting in money instead of trusting in God. And, and that's one of the many ways in, in which money might lead us away from, from the faith, as we just read in 1 Timothy 6, right? And, and so then we see this, that the Pharisees respond to all this teaching about money with Jesus. And do you see how they do it? Verse 14, have a look there. What's it say? They, they ridiculed him. Right? Interesting. They, they they can't refute his teaching about money. <clears throat> they don't even attempt to do so. And and so they do what so many people do when they have no real argument, they just tease and make jokes and rip on him in one way or another. This is this is really simple. It's bullying one oh one. you know, something along the lines is what they're saying, something along these lines that you know, of course you teach that about money. Because you're poor compared to us. There, there, there's no way God is possibly pleased with you. And the reason they'd ridicule him in that way is, is, is this. Because, you see, the, the Pharisees had the same view of, of many of the health and wealth preachers that you, you might know of today. They believed that uh, and taught that to, to be poor was a sign that God has rejected you. And, and to be rich was a sign that God's blessing and, and, and God's love for you was, was there. And can you imagine that? It it breaks my heart that even people today think this way because what a terrible and unbiblical way to live for for your bank account to be the indicator, as far as you think, uh, whether God loves you or not. What a terrible way to live. And so they ridicule him. And then Jesus speaks in response. You see what he says there. He says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You see, self-justification is is when we try to declare ourselves, when we try to declare our actions righteous by some method, right? Some made-up method, something other than the way God tells us to do so. And the Pharisees justified themselves by believing that their wealth was a sign that they were holy and accepted by God. They also did so by believing that obedience to their unbiblical or extra-biblical set of rules is what made them righteous. And, and, And so, in other words, they had come up with their own standard that was different than God's standard of what holiness is. And then they confidently but foolishly believed themselves to be holy and righteous in the sight of God. Now, it's true that people everywhere have guilt. In fact, all people know they've missed the mark at times, even even if they only acknowledge that they've missed some mark that they've set up by their own understanding. Even if they reject everything that they might understand as Christian and biblical, they they still have this understanding of guilt, of somehow not living up to it. And and so we see that over and over again, we see people in all areas of life making attempts at self-justification, Right? And and they're usually very obvious things, right? We can think of the ones like uh, to give money to some charity, to volunteer somewhere, to, to, to really help someone in need. And and really, right, here's the most common one today probably is they try to convince themselves there is some standard other than God's standard, other than God's word, and they lower the bar and then they can believe, they do believe that they have actually met this standard of righteousness. Now, again, the, the Pharisees believed their wealth confirmed that they were holy and righteous before God. They justified themselves then by, 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 by keeping their own legalistic laws. Now, let's look in the mirror on this too. It's so easy for us to just look at the Pharisees and be confident, I'm not a Pharisee, so I must be good, right? Uh, we do this too. We do. We compare our lives to people who are outwardly uh, more sinful and we feel pretty good about ourselves, right? Like that guy killed his spouse. Not a chance. I don't think I'm doing that. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Or or maybe we read our Bible every day and, and we start to find, you know what, maybe it's not for the joy of meeting with God, but but just to justify ourselves, you must accept me. I, I spend morning every morning in in, in the scriptures. Or, or maybe it's the way we want to just explain our sins away, right? I, I got angry at them because I was tired. That's why I was tired. Or or they sinned first. Uh, we know we should obey God's commands to not have idols, but it, it, it's really, you know, just too hard to fight that. So it's okay. God doesn't care about that, really. We, we, we see sin in our lives, and instead of waging war on it, we say something like, hey, I'm working on that, which means, eh. Have you ever told your child, or really anyone, something along these lines, I, I, I shouldn't have yelled at you, but... And that's that moment. Whatever comes out of your mouth after that word but right there, whatever it is that you say, that's going to be your self-justification. I shouldn't have yelled at you, but you made me do it, yada, 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 something along those lines. That's your self-justification. Or, or kids, right? <clears throat> you ever get in trouble with your parents for doing something mean to your brother or your sister, and, and your response is to tell your parents what they did first? As if your parents would be like, oh, wow, if I'd known that, you're good. Go. Carry along, play, uh, right? Like, as if that's going to justify whatever you did. You see, the bigger question that we, we have here is, uh, for all of us, is, is, is why do we seek to justify ourselves? Why do we do it? And, and the simple answer is we are prideful people. We're prideful. We, we want to convince people, even convince ourselves that we're more holy than we are, that everything's fine, we have nothing to worry about. We, we, we don't want to admit that we're really sinners, right? Maybe in some theological high-level understanding of it, we don't want to admit that we're like truly in our daily life sinners, needy sinners. You see, self-justification is foolish because there is nothing within ourselves that can justify us, Nothing. The Pharisees' love of money was connected to their proneness to justify themselves instead of trusting God to justify them through the gospel. That's really at the heart of the issue here. And and Jesus just blows this up for them, blows up any hope they might have had at at self-justification when he here says, But God knows your hearts. That is either a wonderful statement or a terrifying statement. That God knows your hearts. In other words... All the ways we seek to justify ourselves might work with other people. You might be able to convince him and her and him and everybody else around you. You might be able to convince them that you're more righteous than you, than you are. But you can't fool God. He sees right through all of it. He sees right through the heart. He knows everything. God knows the way that we rebel against him. He knows the sins you've committed. Even if no one else knows your sins, God knows those sins, that even, even the sins that deep down you long to commit, that you might even self-righteously, you know, tell yourself, oh, I haven't actually done it, but you long to do so in your heart. He knows the, the bitterness or even hatred boiling in your heart towards certain brothers and sisters in Christ. He, he knows how superior you might feel to somebody else, uh, that you just believe you're, you're superior to them in your heart. He knows how hard you work to present yourself in a certain way to other people, both face to face and on social media and all other areas of our life. You see, to each and every one of you, every one of us, I can say with certainty that God knows your heart. Every aspect of it. Then Jesus at the end of verse 15 adds this, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, just, self-justification is almost always focused on what other people think of you. That's where it goes to. And Jesus' point here is, who cares what other people think of you? Really really at the highest level, at the main point, what what really matters is what God thinks of you. I don't know if we believe that enough. You see, Jesus is pointing out the the strange reality that that what sinful men and and women might celebrate, God often views as an abomination, a terrible evil. This divide is maybe the biggest pressure on Christians today. You, You know it because you probably feel it. Because on some level, we, we want to be unified with the majority of culture. That's where we want to be. That's a comfortable place. We, we want to celebrate what the culture celebrates. And, and for them to be pleased with our views and our values. And, and to just be on the same team in that way. At the very least, we don't want to be called hateful. We, we don't want to be called bigots or homophobes or any other names like that. We don't want to be called that. But We have that question, by whose standard will our life Be judged in the end. Ryle once said that the moment we find ourselves honoring anything in which God's, uh, which in God's sight is seen to be an abomination, we may be sure that there is something wrong with our souls. In some aspect, the, the Christian life is a life of submission to the Lord. He's our Savior, but He's also our, our Master. He's a, a, a place where we find salvation. He's a place where we find rest, a person in whom we find rest. And, and, and if we can just focus on, on that, we can live in a way that honors God and also truly, deeply loves our neighbor. I mean, listen, don't be a bigot. That, that doesn't honor the Lord. Don't be a bigot, but also... Don't be afraid if someone calls you a bigot. If it's not true. Don't don't be afraid of that. Right? You can take a little further. Don't don't hate your neighbor who, who spends her days pushing an LGBT agenda. Hold love in your heart for her, truly. She needs Jesus. And, and she needs to know a, a Christian who will respectfully and intelligently and, and patiently show her the beauty of the gospel long before we want to crush her ideas. And, and until the Holy Spirit works redemption in her heart, you know this, right? Until the Holy Spirit works redemption in her heart, she's never going to change her views. And so, pray for her. Also, don't be afraid if she says you're hateful. I know that's, that's one of the things we really don't want. But don't be afraid if you get called hateful simply because you won't disregard the Scriptures and accept these other views. In other words, on some aspect, we are to expect persecution. I've been doing the the Bible in a reading plan. I uh, had a great lead at the beginning, and I'm now starting to uh, drop off a little bit at this point. Uh, But I think I'm still ahead of where I'm supposed to be anyway. That's my self-justification. Found myself in 2 Timothy 3 this morning. In verse 12 there, I, you know, providentially read this. Uh, It says, All who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. This is one of the way it looks like, right? That we become very uncomfortable with the words we might be called, the, the titles that might be given to us. you know. So if people call you names, that, that's okay. That's okay. Because Christian, you are accountable to the Lord. And, and so mold your, your views, mold, mold your values to God's word, not to whatever is currently trending on Twitter. And, and did you notice here that that the specific thing that Jesus is, is calling an abomination, it's, it's not what we might think in, in this text, right? It's a wider thing. You, you, you probably thought of something like the LGBTQ um, that I use as a current example, or, or maybe you thought of abortion or terrorism or racism or something like that. Does it surprise you that the specific example of an abomination that Jesus gives here is, is simply the love of money? It, it's something that's so easy to fall into, It's not one of those things that you're like, yeah, I'm probably not going to do that. It's one of those things you very easily do. And so, you know, if the love of money or even the world's approval is a temptation to you, you might hear these kind of things from Jesus and feel a little hopeless. Remember, though, the gospel is hope for the hopeless. And we see that hope in verse 16. It reads, The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it, the law and the prophets. This is both a reference to the Old Testament, right? All, all the writings of the Old Testament. But also that time period that moves from, from the sin of Adam, that moves from then until the coming of Christ uh, into the world as our Savior. Now, even in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. Faith In the promise of a Savior that was to come. Uh, Or or to quote rapper Lynn, who I don't often quote rappers, but here it is. Uh, The cross of Jesus Christ is at the nucleus of history. Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. And so salvation, we we know, is is even before the cross, right? Looking forward to the promise. Uh, The kingdom of God in verse 16 is synonymous with the gospel. And the good news that Jesus is speaking of here, the good news of the gospel is that by faith uh, in Jesus, his death, his resurrection, our sins are forgiven in full and our souls are secure for all of eternity, Now, people often misuse God's law in the old, uh, you know, misuse the Old Testament in two different ways. One way it's misused is by living as though you must keep the law. That's the means of salvation. It's here, you keep it, you get salvation. Uh, That is one misuse of it. It was never the way the law was used. Uh, The other is to reject God's law outright, declaring it of absolutely no use anymore. You see… Some act, some Christians act as though you can just throw out God's law. It's outdated. It's done, right? As, as if it's local order number 12. Who cares what local order number 12 has to say? We're on local order number 13 now. We can just throw that away. Uh, that's the view of the law sometimes. I, um, actually, the years ago, a Lutheran pastor at the church my dad goes to was, was talking, and I think Laura was there. That's not an important story. I don't know why I'm telling you uh, anyway, he, he had this thing where he's saying, "When I, there's this billboard in town that had the, just the Ten Commandments on it. That's it. Uh, it didn't tell you to do anything about them. They were just there. And he said every time he drives up past it, he just wants to drive his car off the road into the sign and, and knock the thing down. And I wanted to tell him, I think that's probably going to violate one of those. But, um, you know, that, that's what he wanted to do because he thought that the Ten Commandments, the God's laws of so of no use to Christians, we just need to get rid of it. Uh, and he's wrong. He, he's absolutely wrong. What, what what is it we say every week after the preaching of the passage? Right, Isaiah forty verse verse eight: the grass withers, the flower fades. That's right. The word of our God will stand forever. You see, very often in Scripture too, if it, you know even all right, forget that. But what we see in Jesus here is that, that that often he is defending the law. And it's such an interesting thing because sometimes he's defending it against the Pharisees who want to add things to the law and make all these weird rules for it, right? Other times he's defending the law against their watering it down. That's what we're seeing here. They make a lower standard that maybe they're able to keep that standard. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to see in the moment in the moment with the idea of a divorce. Now, as 1st 1 Timothy 1:8 1, clearly states, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right? The law is good if used lawfully. In in theological terms, there's three uses. There's three purposes of the law. The the first use of the law is to show us God's holiness and our sinfulness. We, we, you know, so we understand that we can never keep God's law. And what that does, the use of that is it says, you know what? I am a sinner because I can see how I can't keep his law. And as soon as you know you're a sinner, that's when you start to know I need a savior. The second use of the law is to restrain evil in the world right? There's expectations. There can be punishments put out as a result of that, disciplines. Uh, in, in fact, in the U.S., the, you know, the reason that uh, you can't just go murder someone, right, is because our law, many of our laws, were, were, were originally formed from looking at the law of God. The, the third use of the law is to guide the regenerate into the works, into good works that God has planned for them. Think Ephesians 2.10, right? The good works that were created for us, um, even before the establishment of the world. See, this this means that one of the law's purposes is is to make us aware uh, of the way of life that pleases our Heavenly Father. Not that earns salvation, not that earns His love, but that pleases Him. It it shows us how to live, again, not perfectly, but but still to live as those who have been set free from sin. See, if we use the law this third way, then the law is a friend to our soul. It would would do us well then to remember God's law along with all other scripture, right? As as 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's not just talking about the New Testament, and so then the second phrase in this passage is really one of the stranger phrases uh, uh, in all of Scripture. <clears throat> I feel like I'm saying that every single week in Luke lately. Uh, but here's what he says, The good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. That sounds aggressive, Right? Very aggressive, like like if you want to get in the kingdom of God, you've got to kick down the door and bust your way in, as if that's what's going on. Now, here's what's happening though. When Jesus says this, he's talking about conversion. He's talking about faith and repentance. Jesus is saying, this is a forceful thing a spiritually violent thing as you break away from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, from your sinful nature. And and when God saves us, the process of doing that is forceful, violent. And it raises that question, have you broken away from the world and pursued the kingdom wholeheartedly? Really a a better question is, is, is that an ongoing part of your life? Are you pursuing the, are, you, are you breaking from the world and pursuing the kingdom daily, right? Because it's not a one-time event. It's not like casting a vote or getting a tattoo. It's an ongoing way of life, right? Daily breaking from the world and following Jesus with your whole heart. It's a little like marriage, right? Uh, 18 years ago, actually tomorrow we'll mark, 18 years ago, Laura and I stood in a church in Spring, Texas. And, and while it rained outside, we, we made these vows. We made this commitment before God, before the, uh, those who were present, uh, as part of the wedding, uh, that we were breaking from all other men and women uh, and committing to each other, right? That's a commitment. But every day we are still doing that, right? There's still that commitment to, to break from all others and commitment to God and to each other. This is the ongoing way of marriage. Today, as those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, we continue to break from the world and to love God with our whole heart. It's an ongoing process, then in verse 17 here, it's, it's just this memorable way that, that God, uh, for God to say, listen, the moral law still stands. It's not going away. It's going to remain. And, and think about it. God has always been perfect. I think this is one of the helpful things to think about. God has always been perfect. His character does not change because if it does change, that would make him less than perfect. If you're perfect, any change makes you less than perfect, which means God's holiness, his purity, his honesty, his integrity, all of his character does not change. It's, you know, what, what God desires of his creation is the same now as it has always been and always will be. And you can look at the smaller details of that, but from a wide angle, what God desires is for us to live for his glory. For us to further show that the law is 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 still the law, then Jesus or for to, to further show that the law is still the law, Jesus takes this example of divorce. That's what's going on there in verse 18, our last verse, which just says this. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. The the reason Jesus mentions divorce here, it kind of sounds random and out of place, is that the the Pharisees have tried to water down God's law in in the area of divorce, and that's what he's addressing here. You, You see, in God's law, divorce is forbidden, but there is a clause allowing for it, right, if adultery has been committed. Um, Jesus addresses the adultery exception in Matthew 5, 21 and 32. And then in, in Mark 10, 5, Jesus teaches that the reason that Moses has this exception, the reason that Moses allows this when, when, when he's teaching, is because of the hardness of people's hearts. It was never God's intention. The, the other exception for divorce is given in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Uh, this is the case where there's one believing spouse and one unbelieving spouse. Uh, and the unbelieving spouse says, I'm done with you, I'm leaving, and, and just abandons the believing spouse, uh, and, and that's an area where divorce is allowed. Now, getting into this, there's a temptation to take on the topic of divorce as, as a whole massive topic here, to get into the divorce, right? Is it, is it permitted when there's physical abuse? Is it permitted when there's uh, verbal or emotional abuse or all sorts of other details? We're not going to do that today. If you have those questions, I'd be glad to have that discussion with you, but we're not going to do that today because the, the reason Jesus uses this example, of divorce here is to teach us something. It's an example of something, not the main subject. And, and so we must understand that the Pharisees are, are coming into this, this topic of divorce, and, and they've said, you know what? A Jewish man, you can divorce your wife for, for just trivial matters, all kinds of things. In fact, there were was, was some rabbis that taught, you know what? If, if a wife messes up your dinner, that is grounds for divorce. There were some that taught, you know, if, if, if a husband sees another woman that he thinks more attractive, you're, that's ground. You can divorce your wife and pursue this other woman. And, and Jesus knows this, that this is what they're teaching. But this is not in God's law. It's an evil twisting of God's law is what they're doing here. And it violated and it harmed the wife that God's law was intended in this case to protect. And, and so here's what Jesus is pointing out. He's saying, you Pharisees... You're justifying yourself. You want to justify yourself. You want to make yourself think you're keeping the law. And so you've watered it down to something that you find incredibly easy to obey. Uh, You've twisted, twisted God's law. It allows you to sin and you still feel good about yourself. That's what you've done here. And Jesus' point here is that no matter how much you twist the law to fit your needs, to make yourself feel good among all the other Pharisees around you, you actually haven't changed God's law one bit. It's the same as it's always been. So you might feel self-justified when you divorce your wife who who has been faithful, but you're still being evil. You're still in sin. And again, it's easy to look at the Pharisees, but we do the same thing today. I mean, even on the topic of divorce, I've heard so many excuses that, that people give to justify their divorce. That we're just not compatible. We used to be compatible. We're not compatible anymore, right? We, we've grown apart. We didn't expect this to happen. We, we want different things in life. That, you know, this is better for the kids, right? I'm, we're doing it for the kids. We don't want them to see us have an argument. You know, these excuses are on par with, with those of the Pharisees. Right, and and we've watered down God's law, and a myriad—it's not even the word—myriad, myriad, myriad of other areas as well. We we, we lower the, the standard of what we consider gossip. Right, it's it's not gospel. I just I just want you to be able to pray for her. So let me tell you all her dirt, and then you can pray because we're going to talk about all her dirt. Right. Uh, we, we lower the, uh, all sorts of this. We, we, we have made excuses for why it's okay that we get angry at our spouse, our children, our siblings, our parents, or roommates, right? We even have a word for it. We love the word, hangry, right? It's genius. Because being hungry and, you know, that means it's okay to be angry. You were hungry, though. Okay. Right? As if somehow that makes it fine. We're okay stealing intellectual property. Right? The entertainment industry makes too much on this anyway. It's a victimless crime. I'm copying digital. What does it matter? College students, right? Cheating on online classes is suddenly acceptable. And why? Because we can justify, well, everyone else is doing it. If I don't do it, I'm going to fall behind. It's the norm. They know we cheat. We, we don't do a good job... Uh, we, we don't accept even God's good plan for sex inside a marriage because, hey, we're, we're probably going to get married someday anyway, right? We, we want to lower all these standards. So, so while it's of great importance, and hear me out here because we've just done a lot of this, but while it's of great importance that we understand that the law is still God's standard of our behavior, even as Christians I want you to understand even more so, even more important that we know the grace that God has for us in the gospel. Because the gospel is for sinners. It's for you. That's why we don't have to cover everything up, right? We, We seek obedience. We seek to do what God's law calls us to. But But it's for sinners. The gospel is for sinners. The gospel tells us there is a way for sinners to be redeemed, to be truly justified. That's what we want: it's real justification, not self-justification. And the coming of the kingdom does not invalidate the law, but rather it transforms the hearts of the citizens of the kingdom so that we will desire to obey the will of God, our glorious King. We'll mourn when we fail. Will come to our gracious Father, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, knowing there is forgiveness there, not, not covering them up, though. And if your faith is in Jesus, remember, you're true Israel, and I tell you that because I want to, you to keep that in mind as we close with these words uh, of our God spoken through His prophet in Jeremiah 31:33, where he says this: "For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel." After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's the world we live in So we rest in the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we are, we are thankful for the law, for a standard that reveals to us that we are indeed sinners in need of a Savior. We thank you also for the way the law reveals your eternal character, the way it instructs us in the way of life. Father, please help us to to rest in the gospel and to walk in faith. To rest in the gospel and to walk in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.